I, I had a, an interesting, um, an interesting uh, uh, series of events that happened to me a number of weeks ago, and, and I wanted to share this with you to highlight uh, part of the way that uh, I think that God works in us, and one of the ways that you will see God continue to work in your life the longer that you follow Him. Prior to me telling you this story, it's important for you to know um, this point, which has proven true over the last number of years as we've invited in different guests and different leaders and different people into the pursuit, is that uh, I'm willing to uh, partner with anybody who believes that Jesus is Lord in the reaching of souls in the Pacific Northwest. And I think oftentimes, especially in, in Christian community, people are given to this like sense of hyper-tribalism or um, division where if people don't exactly communicate like us or exactly talk like us or I read a blog one time because I'm an online researcher, you know, then we kind of get all offended and develop all of these opinions about everybody else who's, who's working in a different lane in the kingdom of God. And what I've found is that my life has been greatly enriched by people who hold different positions from me but are still under the canopy of the kingdom of God. Yeah, people like Pastor Benny Hinn, people like Pastor Lou Engel and Dr. Michael Maiden and even Pastor Ju Fuquay, you name it. People who are gifted differently than me and they've got different experiences and they've got different gifts and different talents, but the Lord has aligned us for such a time as this in the partnering of casting a great net in this city to reach as many people as possible for the gospel. And what the enemy wants to do is the same thing that religious folks want to do is to get you so divided and so isolated and so focused on just your little tribe or your little denomination that you forget that the cry of the heart of Jesus is that there would be laborers thrust out into the harvest field. And over the last number of years, we partnered with just a litany of people who God is using in powerful ways and we're happy to continue to do so. And I'm happy to defend that record both publicly and, and privately, and so I say that as a lead-up to this story. <clears throat> a number of weeks ago, uh, I found myself in, in, in West Palm Beach, Florida for a series of meetings, and during one of the breakout meetings, there was a group of about 30 pastors there from around the nation. I was talking uh, with a man who sat across the table from me. I didn't know his name. He didn't know me, but we were eating lunch literally like two feet away from each other. And so what do you do? You make small talk. You have polite conversation because that's kind of what you do. And he said, what's your name? And I said, Russ. And he said, well, where are you from? And I go, well, I pastor in Seattle. And it's the, always the same reaction. Oh, Seattle, that's the belly of the beast. And you're surviving and blah, blah, blah. And I said, yeah, that's us. And, you know, just trying to fight for the kingdom and do what we can. And and he was like, well, what's going on? I was like, well, we just got this campus in Kirkland. We're doing these events and believe in God and people are coming and coming to faith and getting healed and saved and born again. And he was like, wow, man, that's amazing. He said, so what's next for pursuit? What's the wildest dream right now that God has placed in your heart? And I was like, I mean, you know, God's going to keep helping us. I mean, I don't know. What do you, you know, what do you say? I'm, we're, we're just making small talk. We're trying to be polite. And when somebody is like, okay, right now, give me your 10-second answer to what you're like, wildest next thing that you're going to announce it, pursued in this dream, and we're going to do it. And I'm just like kind of looking for answers. Like, all right, free Lambos for everybody who shows up on Sunday. or <clears throat> So that's next week. But you know what I mean? Like, what, what is it? What is it? What, what's the thing? You know, shoot, shoot for the moon. And, and, and what is it? And I said, I said, bro, I don't know. I go, I do have one crazy idea. He's like, he's like, what is it? And I go, I know this is going to sound wild. But I said, you know, I, I grew up in, in the house that we grew up in. We didn't have no cable. Only got about 10 channels and three of them were Christian TV. <laughs> That I, I grew up watching this guy preach, and yeah, he sounds a little different than me and has a little bit of different style, but I just honor that he wins souls. For the scripture says, He who wins souls is wise. He was like, Well, who is it? Who is it? And I was like, I don't want to say it's gonna sound dumb. And I'm just I'm just trying to tell you, we just honor the way that God has equipped and gifted different people, and I just I don't know. And He's like, no, tell me, tell me. And I was like, okay, it sounds crazy, but this is it. 
I think maybe one day God's going to give me the opportunity to, to meet a man by the name of Pastor Joel Osteen. And I'd love to partner with him somehow to win souls in the Pacific Northwest. Now, I know it's crazy, and I'm just throwing it out there, but you asked me what my wildest story, dream could be in this moment. He looks at me, his eyes get all big, and he goes, you know what I do for a living? I'm like, no. He goes, I'm the exact pastor for a man named Pastor Joel Osteen. I was like, uh, what? <laughs> I was just kidding. No, I said, what? <clears throat> and um, lo and behold, a friend of a friend ended up sending Pastor Joel some of the clips from our grand opening in Kirkland last week. Long story short, I'm getting on a plane a week from tomorrow for a meeting with Pastor Joel in Houston, Texas. And I don't know what's going to come of it, but I've been looking at Husky Stadium, and I'm just thinking maybe we ought to rally together and win some souls at the University of Washington. The reason why I tell you that story is twofold. Number one, I know that everybody, especially in our culture, feels very well insulated about their opinions that they have developed about people that they have never met. But I know this, that it's not my responsibility, number one, to judge another man's servant. Number two, it's so easy for us to allow people who actually don't even have any involvement or interest in the kingdom of God to somehow paint a picture of how other people operate and then in doing so, cause us to carry a grievance that was never ours to carry and develop all sorts of weird opinions about folks. You know, I get all sorts of crazy emails every week from folks around the nation who have all sorts of opinions about what we do here. And I'm just glad that I got some few friends who know me for who I am and continue to partner with me because at the end of the day, what we want to do is win souls in the Pacific Northwest. And I, I just figure we're going to continue to try to partner with as many folks as possible from all sorts of different streams in Christendom. Whether they in California, Texas, Florida, around the nation, you name it. But people who share a similar passion, like, look, we got to get people saved and born again. But I was thinking about that story in this context. The reason why I share it with you is this. is because God knows the desires of your heart before you even formalize them in some sort of audible language. He knows them. He knows them. Only a God as intimately involved in the details of our lives could somehow foreordain a conversation and a connection like that. I'm not sure what will come of it, but I do know this, that God is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And the Bible says that he is the grantor or the giver of the desires of our hearts. He withholds no good thing from those whom he loves. And God is an expert at partnering with things that you don't even want to verbalize. And saying, look, watch what I can do. And so I share that with you to, to communicate this. I think sometimes in the way that we follow the Lord and we think about our relationship with him, it's like we're almost scared to pray or scared to hear his voice because we're always like, well, God's going to tell me something terrible that I don't want to do and I'm going to hate it for the rest of my life and this is what I get for following the Lord. And here's the reality. God knows exactly what you were hardwired to do from the moment he formed you in your mother's womb. He knows what will speak to the existential fulfillment of your soul. He knows exactly uh, uh, the things that will cause you to come into fullness and come into completion as a son or as a daughter of the Most High. You don't got to be scared to talk to God because you think that all of a sudden he's going to download something in your life that you absolutely hate and you've got to just grin and bear it for the rest of your life. No, <clears throat> when you come alive to the purpose for which you were created, it is the single greatest thing that gives the most glory to God. God is not interested in killing your joy. He's interested in killing the things that kill your joy. And God intimately partners with the fabric of the way that we are intertwined and made. And he actually helps you realize dreams in your heart that you might have not even ever known were there. That's how good God is. And that's why you can trust him with your past, present, and your future because he's been there in every moment of your life. He is the blueprint. He is the originator. He is the uncaused cause. He is the author uh, authoritative creator of your life. He, he, he has fine-tuned you in such a way 
way that you can trust his voice because when he speaks, he has your best interest in mind. And only the God of Scripture is revealed through the pages of the Holy Bible cares that much about his creation that he would so order the details of our life that it would bring fulfillment and joy to every part of, of, of who we are. I want to share with you uh, this evening out of uh, Acts chapter 12, and in doing so, look at a few uh, key verses that I believe speak contextually to the moment that we find ourselves in today as a church, and, and maybe hopefully give you some language uh, for not only why we do what we do, uh, but some theological context that will help create a, a construct for why we believe what we believe. Now, in verse 1 of Acts 12, written by a man named Dr. Luke, a Gentile follower of Jesus, the first century historian of the early church, he says this, telling a story of a political leader in verse 1. The Bible says this, Now, about that time, Herod Agrippa laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Now about that time, watch, Herod Agrippa laid <clears throat> violent hands on some who belonged to the church. It is my simple belief today that if we are not encountering any blowback for what we say we believe, it should function as a challenge to us on whether or not we actually believe what we say we believe. In a culture that is diametrically opposed to the kingdom of God, you better believe today that what you confess to be true about God will in some way engender a level of blowback from those who operate in the kingdom of darkness. Now remember, friction from the kingdom of darkness is not a sign that you're going in the wrong direction. Often it's a sign that you're pointed in the right direction. If you're getting blowback from the enemy, it's because he's ticked off that you're alive. And frankly, if I could be honest tonight, the enemy is not that ticked off at a lot of believers who have frankly fallen asleep in their faith, living in spiritual cruise control on neutral, just waiting until the Lord calls them home. But when the enemy finds a church that is on advancement, taking territory from the kingdom of darkness, he is more irritated than ever before. It's my hope and my belief that pursuit Seattle in specific is the chief irritant to the prince of darkness in this region. That every time we gather, he's getting more and more irritated by the very minute. Like, man, them lousy, pesky Christians keep showing up and worshiping. It's negative 37 degrees outside. It's cold as all gets out, and they still gather in the house of God. What's wrong with these people? Now, about that time, Herod Agrippa laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. <clears throat> During the time of Christ and his disciples, the area in which they lived, which was Jerusalem and Judea, was ruled by a family of brutal dictators who served the Roman Empire. These dictators, they all shared the common title of Herod because really what it meant was governor or ruler. In the New Testament, we have at least three different Herods who all find prominence in the biblical record. Herod the Great makes his appearance in Matthew 2 when he orders all the baby boys two years and younger to be put to death because he has heard the rumors of a Savior born in Bethlehem. The Coptic church fathers estimate that upwards of 160,000 children were killed as a result of Herod the Great's decree. After, the Herod, after Herod the Great dies, power is handed to his son, a man by the name of Herod Antipas. He makes his appearance in Mark 6 when he orders John the Baptist to be headed, and his head is placed on a silver platter and presented to the young girl who danced in front of him. Eventually, Herod Antipas is exiled and power is handed to his nephew, who's worse than the first two, a man named Herod Agrippa, and this is the ruler who persecutes the church in Acts 12. Now watch, three different kings, three different time periods, one thing in common. Demonic resistance manifesting through social and political violence that is entirely aimed at harming the people of God and stopping the church of God. Now Herod isn't just a man, Herod is a spirit that attempts to steal the harvest, kill the prophets, and destroy the next generation. Herod might be the governor, but Jesus is king. Herod might occupy a seat of political power, but the earth belongs to the Lord and the fullness there within. And God never allows a Herod to reign, watch, without causing a remnant to rise. 
Herod might have the popular vote, but there is only one in heaven who is worthy to unroll the scroll. And he holds the title deed to earth. And at his name, rulers are brought low and others are raised up. See, we've got some Herods in the West, but the Bible says Yah rides on the clouds and he judges the nations with his sword. That's why the Bible says in the book of Psalms that when the nations rage, Jesus sitting next to the Father, sits on his throne and laughs. The nations think that they're in control. They think that they ultimately have political power and authority. But the Bible says all authority is vested in the triune Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and, and God the Holy Ghost. Man thinks that he's in authority. Man thinks that he's in control. But what we have is a limited dispensation. The reality is, is that the name and the power of the Almighty, the very sun stands still, Time itself ceases to pass. Eternity itself is reserved for the believer at the mighty name of the one that we worship in buildings just like this on Sunday nights. And so although Herod occupies a temporary political seat of power, we know that the God that we serve oversees the very nations of the earth. It's amazing to me today the amount of Christians in the West who have developed theologies that have, that have exempted them from things that are difficult. Sometimes they think, well, the world is just going to get better and better, and Christians are going to turn the earth back into the Garden of Eden. And then one day, once we're back in the Garden of Eden, we're all naked, running around, eating fruit, then finally Christ is going to return. That's wrong. <clears throat> I reject partial preterism as an eschatological construct. We live in the midst of dueling revivals, a revival of righteousness and a revival of iniquity. It's the tale of two cities. It's the best of times and the worst of times. The light is getting lighter, but the dark is getting darker. And those two things grow in a dynamic tangent until the very end of the last days where Christ himself will descend and judge the nations of the earth. People think, well, once I give my life to Jesus, that means I'll never struggle with sin or sickness ever again, and nothing unfair will ever happen to me. Wrong again. People think, well, the church was persecuted in the Bible times, but not really so much today, because humanity is so much more tolerant. Wrong again. The problem with this type of theological narrative is that it causes you to fall apart as soon as you experience something tough that your theological box did not predict. There is a reason why the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, endure hardship as a good soldier. When all hell breaks loose against you, know that greater is he who is in me than he that is in the world. In fact, about two-thirds of the New Testament letters focus on the preservation of the life of the believer. After doing everything to stand, continue to stand. Continue to labor in the grace that God has given you. Put on the full armor of God that you would extinguish all the fiery darts of the enemy. To him who endures, to him who perseveres, they will be given the crown of life. Over and over through the apostolic literature of the New Testament, what is being developed is this narrative of perseverance and endurance because Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. Why? For I have overcome the world. And if you think following Jesus is your get out of difficulty free card, you are one disappointment away from deconstructing your faith and then a aligning your allegiance in lesser things. The reality is for many of you, when you give your life to Jesus, things don't immediately get easier. In many ways, they get more difficult because for the first time you are swimming upstream instead of downstream. You are facing conflict from culture that you never even felt before. Why? Because you're not going with the flow. You are born from above. Your spirit's been regenerated. You're not just following your flesh. In fact, you're crucifying your flesh, picking up your cross and following him. You are standing now diametrically opposed to the ways of the world and the spirit of the age. Number one, that makes you a target. But number two, it doesn't feel very good. And the reality is, is that when you pledge yourself to the faithful followership and fidelity under the banner of Christ Jesus, what it does is it causes you to have grace for the conflict, the tension, the trauma, and the trouble that lies ahead. Jesus didn't promise us a pain-free life, but instead a worthwhile life. And if you will endure to the end, one day you will hear, well done, good and faithful servant, and it will make every ounce of trouble you ever put up with well worth it to see him face to face. We are not living for temporary pleasure. We are living for eternal glory. 
there is something better that lays ahead. There is a blessed assurance. We are seated in heavenly places. Our eternal position has been secured. The devil does not have permission to pluck you out of the Lord's hand. Jesus says in John 17, I haven't lost any of them outside the son of perdition in order to fulfill prophecy. Jesus is really good at finding you, keeping you, securing you, and sustaining you. But you've got to develop in your own mind today a theological narrative that makes room for unexplained difficulty, else you'll always be upset at God for not giving you what you feel like you deserve. Here's the truth. More than 70 million Christians have been martyred in the course of history. More than half were martyred in the 20th century under communist and fascist governments. Christianity is the world's most persecuted religion. It's not even close. In the past year alone, 360 million Christians or one in seven believers around the world suffered significant persecution for their faith. In 1993, Christians who faced high to extreme levels of persecution registered in 40 countries. In 2024, that number has doubled to 76 countries. Someone asked me the other day, Pastor, do you think the church will go through the tribulation before Christ returns? I think a vast majority of the church outside of this country has been in the tribulation for many years. I've had the great privilege of being in places like Northeast India and spending time with the persecuted church. And here is what is most striking about their testimony. The persecuted church isn't praying for less persecution. They are praying for the grace to endure that they may receive the crown of life. I've sat with young men whose arms were cut off by their own mothers when they left the Muslim faith to follow Jesus. I've I've heard the testimony of those whose faces were disfigured with acid when they left the Hindu faith to follow Jesus. I've sat in their homes. I've listened to their stories. I've been stirred by their deep faith and left convinced of this reality, that what gives me great hope for the future of the church today is not the technology of the American church or the intellectualism of the European church or even the passion of the Latin church. What gives me great hope for our future is the bravery, perseverance, endurance, and stubborn refusal to give up, from the persecuted church. And in the year 2024, if you're not catching at least a little heat for the way you live, the convictions you hold or the things that you believe, it's probably because you've adopted a faith that means very little, impacts very few, and cowers in every conflict. See, everyone says they want a first century church, but very few have a willingness to embrace first century conflict. No friend following Jesus is, 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 is not for the faint of heart. And if following Jesus is only as attractive as long as it's beneficial to your paycheck, your cultural standing, or your social influence, my fear is that you are headed to a collapse of self. Watch what the scriptures say in 2 Timothy 3. Indeed, everyone who desires to live a godly life, everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. John 15 and 20, remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master, for if they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. Let me remind you of what Acts 12 and 1 says. It says, Herod Agrippa laid not just ordinary hands, but violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Watch this, Herod's activity in verse 1 is the demonic counterfeit to the Christian mandate. The enemy has laid violent hands on this region, so how do we respond? When the enemy sends disease, we lay hands on the sick and they recover, according to Mark 16. When the enemy causes disunity, we lift up holy hands without wrath or doubting, according to 1 Timothy 2. When the enemy manufactures depression, we clap our hands and shout unto God, according to Psalms 47. When the enemy sows carnality, we purify our hands, according to James 4. When the enemy tries to distract you from the harvest that lays ahead of you, we commit the work of our hands unto the Lord, according to Proverbs 16. See, the enemy has nothing new, and Christ still has all authority, and no matter what comes our way, we have a faith that overcomes the world. Now watch what happens in verse 2. The Bible says this, Now Herod had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this was met with approval amongst the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. After arresting him, he locked him up in prison, handed him over to be guarded by four squads of soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him to public trial after the Passover. See, Acts 12 in many ways begins a dangerous historic pattern in the first century. 
as the Roman government began a concentrated effort to try and stamp out Christianity by systematically eliminating anyone who claimed to have seen the resurrected Christ. Now hear me, friend, you can kill the messenger, but you can't stop the message. And the reality of Christ's resurrection is still the cornerstone of the church today. For if Christ was not raised, our faith is useless and our preaching was in vain. It makes no sense for the disciples to give their life for a myth. Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross. Philip was impaled by iron hooks in his ankles and hung upside down to die. Matthias was stoned. Matthew was impaled by stakes. Thomas was killed by the sword. James, the son of Alphaeus, was thrown from the tower and clubbed to death once he hit the ground. Thaddeus was beheaded with an axe. Bartholomew was flayed. Simon the Zealot was cut in half with a saw. And James is killed by Herod. In fact, the only apostle not to die a martyr's death was the apostle John, the brother of James, who died at the age of 88 in the city of Ephesus as he functioned as the apostolic overseer of the churches in Asia Minor. Now watch this. Herod kills the apostle James, but even in his death, life is being produced. Eusebius, the early church historian, records that the Roman soldier who was standing guard was so impacted by the witness of James that as James is being killed by Herod, he too declared himself a Christian and was willingly executed alongside James at the same time. See, as long as you keep your faith, regardless of the outcome of your circumstance, there is literally no way for the enemy to have victory. <clears throat> Herod seizes two apostles, James and Peter. One dies and the other lives. I'm not sure to what to make of that outside of this fact. How the situation resolves itself is up to God, but how I manage the testimony of my life is up to me. <clears throat> There's a lot of folks we pray for. Some get healed and others don't. I'm not sure what to make of that outside of this fact. If you're praying for someone today who ends up passing away in the weeks or the months to come, before you get mad or disappointed, I want you to consider the possibility that there may have been a nurse or a doctor standing guard next to them in that hospital room who might never have gotten reached for the gospel outside the crucial witness of a dying person who refused to give up on a faithful God. See, we are so time limited in the way that we perceive his faithfulness. Well, if I prayed for it and it didn't turn out the way that I wanted in the timeline that I wanted it to, then maybe God is not as powerful as I once considered him. Or maybe God has an eternal perspective and you have a temporal perspective. Maybe God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. And even if there was a prayer that was unfulfilled by the time that you pass away, it'll be fulfilled by your children's children and you'll have the best seat in the house and the great cloud of witnesses to observe it happening here on the earth. Don't discount what God is doing just because it don't happen in in the microwave 60 to 90 second time frame of our attention deficit disordered culture that wants God to respond instantly to every prayer else we develop some sort of dramatic response to him. God don't love me anymore. I've been praying for a spouse for 13 seconds now and it hasn't happened and I just don't know if anybody will ever love me. No, not with that attitude. Nobody will. You weirdo. Yeah, my favorite people are people who've labored in prayer and intercession for years and refuse to give up. They're holding on to promises. They're holding on to things. They're holding on to the belief that what God told them will be true and they'll see it fulfilled one way or another. One of my favorite people in all of the New Testament is a prophetess named Anna who serves in the temple day and night, the Bible says, with fasting and prayer. Her husband passed away, and for many years, she was just a widow who served in the temple. And the Lord spoke to her, you will see the consolation of Israel. You will see the fulfillment of the messianic promise. If you keep serving, gotta keep working, and there will come a day where this comes full circle. And the Bible says she just happened to be on duty the day that Joseph and Mary brought in baby Jesus to be dedicated unto the Lord. And in that moment, what she had contended for for generations, what she refused to develop a bad attitude with all of the tragedy that she experienced in her life. In one finite moment, the culmination that she had been believing for was completed in her midst as she saw the very promised son of God dedicated by his mom and his
his stepdad unto the work of the Lord. And I'm just telling you that there is a reward that waits for those who persevere. Do you know that one of the fruits of the Spirit is still long-suffering? Now, we don't sell out a lot of conferences to come to the long-suffering session. We got conferences on how your dream's going to be fulfilled. You're going to get more money. You're going to have a better life. You're going to have more sex than you ever had before. God's going to answer all your dreams overnight. It's going to be so awesome. You're going to be social media famous, blah, blah, blah. Who wants all your dreams fulfilled? Run to the altar. Ain't nobody responded to the long-suffering fruit of the Spirit altar call. But there is a reward for those who when they face conflict, instead of running from it, they ask God for the grace to get through it. They double down. They're standing on the rock that is higher than I. They persevere through the dark night of the soul, through the valley of the shadow of death, through the great storm that rages against the boat of their journey, and they refuse to give up on that which God has said to them. And I'm telling you, all over Scripture, and especially in the New Testament, what we have is a theology being developed by the apostolic authors that encourage encourages this very characteristic in the life of a believer. In fact, even when Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, he warns against a seed that is shallow in the soil that sprouts up quickly, but its roots don't develop deep. He says, be warned of that type of quick growth. Why? Because the cares of life will choke it out. Anybody can have a good moment. And in fact, anybody can have a good season, but very few Christians have a good life. Because you want to live for the Lord a long time, have your life be pleasing to him as a living sacrifice, laid down in pursuit of who he is. What it requires you is to keep your peace while others are losing their minds. See, nothing irritates the enemy more than a believer who confesses the reality of Christ's resurrection power. When you take communion, you confess his death and resurrection. When you gather for church on Sunday, you commemorate the day Christ rose from the grave. When you pray for your sick, you're placing your faith in the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. Every single eyewitness to the resurrection was dead by the close of the first century. But 1,900 years later, the church has never been more alive. Why? Because we still confess that which the early apostles gave their life for. Jesus is alive, and that changes everything. In fact, Jesus is alive, and whoever believes in him, although they may die, they will live again. Jesus is alive, and because he lives, there is no power in hell or opposition from man that can keep me from my God-ordained destiny. See, Herod sees that killing James pleased the Jews, and in an effort to gain more of their approval, he seizes Peter next. It's apparent to me that Herod in some way revered the supernatural power of God because he assigned 16 soldiers to guard a blue-collar fisherman named, turned Jesus follower named Peter. And I'm sure Herod has heard the stories of miraculous midnight prison breaks, and he thinks to himself, no way is this happening on my watch. So watch how the story continues. Verse five, watch. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church, the church was earnestly praying. Peter was in prison, but the church was earnestly praying. It didn't say the church was earnestly posting social media graphics with Peter's face saying, hashtag pray for Peter. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. And sentries stood guard at the entrance. Watch. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. He said, quick, get up. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Now watch this. The closest disciples to Christ were always three dudes, Peter, James, and John. So put yourself in Peter's shoes. He just seen James executed. He now finds himself in the same prison facing a similar fate. And the night before trial was about to begin, as Peter is sleeping, the church is earnestly praying. How could you be sleeping if you was Peter? You just seen half your friends butchered by the Roman government. Now you're in prison and you know that you are facing a similar outcome. How could you be sleeping at a moment like this? Why? Because peace is an inside job, not an outside one. Watch. I want you to see this. The prison doors are closed, but the heavenly ones are open. 
So the church takes advantage of that which is open to them to make their requests known to God. How many of you know prayer goes places that we could never go ourselves? Closed doors are no threat to the power of a praying church. As we pray, God dispatches and releases angels on his ladder from heaven to earth. They are like messengers of fire that carry his power, his priority, and his prerogative. You will never know the impact of your prayer. Just because you don't receive an instant testimony from the prayer that you have prayed does not mean that that prayer hit a brass heaven and bounced back down. When the word of God is released, watch, it accomplishes everything it's been sent forth to do. meaning that when a prayer is released, it's got a guaranteed rate of return. Now, we don't know when it will return because it's like the wind, it's released. We don't know where it came from or necessarily where it goes or how it will land, but we know when a word of faith is attached to prayer, released from the mouth of a believer, it accomplishes, not some things, but everything that it was sent forth to do. Your preferred method of breakthrough may not be available to you this evening. Your preferred preacher may be on vacation tonight. Your preferred worship song may have not been sung by the team this evening. But could you take advantage of that which has been opened unto you? The earthly door may be shut, but there is a heavenly door that is open, which means we have confidence that he hears us. And watch, we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Peter is sleeping, but there is a church that is praying. And most importantly, there is a God that is working. The very thing Herod does not want to happen is an angelic visitation at midnight to free a man who's been guarded by 16 soldiers day and night. Now the Bible says Herod was very angry at the people of Tyre and Sidon, so they sent a delegation to make peace with him because their cities was dependent upon Herod's country for food. And an appointment with Herod was granted. When the day arrived, Herod put on his royal robe, sat on his throne, and delivered a public address to the people. The people was so overwhelmed with his great ovation, they shouted, this is the voice of a God, not a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because Herod did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God grew and multiplied. This New Testament, not Old Testament. And I don't know about you, but the Bible ever throw in a verse there that just kind of sends you in a spinning out direction? Herod is locking up Peter. Now he's granting food to people who are in famine. And they're like, Herod, you're so great. He's like, yeah, I actually am. And the Lord says, oh, that was it. That's enough. Let me send that angel. The same one who got Peter free is about to knock you dead. Not only will you die, but I think now worms are going to eat your body. But I've never made this connection before today, but I wanted to show you it. It's verse 7 and verse 23. They have the exact same setup with completely different results. Watch, in verse 7, the angel of the Lord strikes Peter and sets him free. In verse 23, the angel of the Lord strikes Herod and makes him dead. The same word, the same angel, the same activity. One, when they get struck, they're set free. The other, when they get struck, they're eaten by worms. And it hit me. I think it was an old Charles Spurgeon quote. He said this, the same sun that hardens the clay melts the wax. Watch, the same gospel that melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. Watch, the same sermon that motivates one person under righteousness bores another person into bondage. Watch, the same revival that causes one church to grow causes another church to complain. Watch, the same angel that struck Peter under freedom struck Herod unto death. I don't think the angel of the Lord struck Herod any harder than he struck Peter. So it leaves me with one explanation. When the posture of your heart is not right with God, the same touch that causes one to live will cause another to die. Hear me. When your heart is not right 
with God. The same touch that causes one to live will cause another to die. Over the years, um, I've developed an appetite for um, spicy food, but not, not because I like it or enjoy it, but because it represents a challenge uh, when I'm eating it. And somebody for um, my birthday last year, they got me this demonic spice, ghost chili. I don't even know how to pronounce powder. India's but Jaloki. Ghost chili. However hot you think this is, double it and then double it again. This is about the hottest thing I ever had in my entire life. You put about two shakes on, on, on anything and it'll light up your whole life. You'll pay for it for the next three, four days. So I would use it sparingly. Every once in a while, kind of flavor food, spice food. And there was something that Barrio was making, and, and I'd used it, but it had been a busy day to church, and I had uh, forgotten to uh, put it away. And I had, like, twisted the cap on a little bit, but, like, not all the way, and I'd left it on the, the kitchen table. And the next day, about 6.30 a.m., I, I wake up to this real kind of demonic scream in in the kitchen. Um, now, see, the problem is, is that, you know, my, my five-year-old, she liked to wake up early in the morning and go to the pantry and just eat the food, random food, food that doesn't even make sense. Just, just stuff, just, you know, like, like mayonnaise and condiments and it's just stuff that you're like, what, how and why, you know? And while we were still sleeping in the wee hours of the morning, she woke up and she found this little bottle of, of powder, and she thought to herself, well, I might just taste this one too. And, and by the time that I ran downstairs, she was screaming. I'm telling you, I don't know how she did it, but she baptized herself in the ghost chili. Top of the head to the bottom of the feet. In her eyes, her nose, her mouth. Like, I just, I don't know how. I don't know how. I don't know how. But it was like, she just took it and went like that, and it was all over. Now, she probably won't do that ever again, but... It struck me in relation to this story in, in Acts 12, the same thing that I would use to bring a little flavor and spice to my life just about killed the five-year-old that we have. <laughs> Listen, when the posture of your heart is not prepared for that which God desires to do, the same spirit that will cause one person to live will cause the other person to feel left behind. When the spirit of God begins to move in a room, I can always see it on people's face. There's some people engaged and they're like, look, I'm going for it. And God, whether or not I get the fullness of everything I'm believing for tonight, I'm here, I'm engaged, I'm pursuing you. It's not attached to an outcome. It's attached to the beauty of the Lord, which still gets me every time. I'm going to seek you. I'm going to seek your face. I'm going to avail my heart unto you, God. I'm here for you. And, and then you got other folks who are like, yeah, man, I'm showing up just to see maybe what God would do. And if he does enough for me and he makes it just right and he answers all my questions and he gives me all the signs that I want to see, then maybe, just maybe, I'll give this another try. And one person gets revived and the other person gets bitter. One person gets blessed and the other person leaves broken. Another person gets healed up and restored and their joy is filled. And another person gets home and writes an angry blog and how much they hate the church. And it's just so interesting to me that you can have two people in similar situations sit in the same service, through the same worship, hear the same sermon, and experience the same anointing. And one person leaves better and the other person leaves bitter. Why? Because when the posture of your heart is not right, the same touch that sets one person free will cause another person to shrivel up, complain, and die. It's the same angel. But Peter's heart is right while Herod's heart is wicked. See, Herod makes the same mistake as Lucifer. He forgets who belongs on the throne and attempts to take the glory for himself. And both are struck down from positions that they occupied. Now watch. In Acts 12, Herod kills James. He tries to kill Peter. He kills the guards that were guarding Peter. And then to top it off, he receives the worship of people from Tyre and Sidon. And God says, enough is enough. 
And do you know what's interesting? Modern scholars believe that not only did Herod Agrippa die by being eaten by worms, but his grandfather Herod the Great died the exact same way. It's almost like if you don't root out toxic behaviors in your generation, the only thing you do is pass them on to the next one. You can wish all day long that you won't be like those who came before you, but what are you doing right now to stop this thing from being passed to your kids and to your grandkids? Hear me so clearly. Either you will resist pride or pride will cause God to resist you. When scripture says pride comes before a fall, it's saying that pride creates a runway for destruction to land upon. Pride isn't just a bad idea. It's literally the setup for your downfall. Don't ever forget the reason for your success, the reason for your promotion, the reason for your favor, the reason for your open doors. It is not the result of human ingenuity. It is the result of a gracious and a benevolent God. I honestly think that this is the secret sauce here at Pursuit. When the Lord touched us, it caused us to live. Why? Because we had already died to the applause of the crowd. And Herod's on a losing streak. Every time he tries to kill an apostle, another church gets planted. Tries to take out Peter. An angel shows up and says, not today. People come and they worship him for being so benevolent. He goes, yeah, aren't I just the greatest? And God says, on top of your murderous ways, now you got pride sitting in your heart? I've had enough. And that angel says, I'm making another express visit, delivers judgment to Herod, and his life is ended. But I think the secret sauce here at Pursuit is that when the Lord touched us, it caused us to live and it, it caused us to rejoice and it caused us to breathe as if it were our first breath in a long time because we had already died to the thing that a lot of other people crave, which is the applause, the affirmation, and the worship of the crowd. And can I tell you, friend, when you've received affirmation and identity from the Father, what it will help do in your heart is so secure you and establish you that whether there's complaints one day and compliments the other, you are not swayed by the popular vote of the people that you stand before. If you are waiting for the culture to cast their vote on your convictions, you are already on the losing side of your faith. If you are waiting for somehow the public square to cheer you on for following Jesus and being faithful to the sexual ethic of scripture and not being ashamed of the gospel of Christ Jesus, for it is the power of God unto salvation, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, you're gonna be waiting a long time because that is is a bygone era. You live in a world that is hell-bent on its own destruction, where the kingdom of darkness is raging because the enemy knows that his time is limited. To be a Christian is a revolutionary act in a world that is dominated by darkness. But I'm telling you, Christ has not set us as light under a bushel, but instead light set on a hill for all men to see, which means you're going to attract a lot of people with your light. You're also going to attract a lot of conflict with your light. And unless you settle who you serve in these moments, when the touch of God lands on your shoulder, it'll cause you to go the wrong way instead of the right way. But if you can establish in moments like this that I serve God, his affirmation is the only thing that I need. If he gives me my approval, that's the only stamp in my passport that is required, then come hell, highway, byway, bad days or good days, you know my position has been established in eternal places and it cannot be moved. And this is why the scripture says, store up your treasure in a place where moth and rust cannot destroy where robbers and thieves cannot break in. For wood, hay, and stubble, when the fire comes, will be burned up, but gold, silver, and precious gems will be refined. And we want to live our lives in a way that honors what Christ paid such a high price for. I'm not reaching the end of my life to become successful at things that don't matter. We're willing to embrace the conflict of the culture because we know that at his touch, we come alive. And can I tell you, friend, we ought to make a commitment, especially after Pastor Jude preached last week and the things that God has done just in this short season. We ought to make a commitment that we is a praying church. That when it looks like the world is falling apart around us, we are partnering with the great intercessor of heaven, Christ Jesus himself. 
we are pouring ourselves out in holy and spiritual dialogue, knowing that our prayers carry the power to shift the course of history. How many angels have been dispatched by your prayers this week? You might not never know until you reach eternity's shores. How many times has an assignment of death been interrupted in somebody else's life this week because of your prayers? How many people has God plucked from the miry clay because of your prayers this week? How many assignments of the enemy have been interrupted because of your prayers that don't return void yet accomplish everything they have been sent forth to do? I know as the opportunities increase and as God continues to add and do what he does best in this region, we gotta be more committed than ever to not allow the compliment to go to our head or the criticism to go to our heart. But instead, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, we run our race with endurance, not giving up nor giving in to the pagan culture around us, knowing that what God has started, he in fact will finish and he is not done yet. I believe that Seattle comes alive at the touch of the Lord. I believe that this region begins to breathe again as he visits us in power and in glory. I believe that tonight, just like bondage was broken off of Peter, bondage can be broken off of your life. I believe tonight that God can speak to your heart. I believe tonight that you don't have to miss out on another opportunity for his anointing to heal the wounded or the fractured places of your human heart. I believe that tonight where his spirit is, there is freedom and liberty from all sorts of negative and demonic traps and bondages that the enemy has laid as a snare in front of you. I just believe tonight that the same God who dispatched an angel to free Peter from Herod's prison has dispatched angels to free you from the prisons that await you, from the things that have tried to trap you up, hold you back, the burdens that have tried to weigh you down. Because in his atmosphere, there is freedom and there is liberty and it's for you and it's for me tonight. This God is worthy of praise and adoration. This God whose attributes are recorded in the 66 books that we have in our Bible today is still able to perform these miracles even in our midst. And if he can cause the lame to get out of wheelchairs, just watch what he can do in and through your life. This God at his touch can make you come alive. Come on, would you stand with me as we close?